Well, today we are finishing off our time in James. Finally got there. It's been like Luke. Who would have thought it could go for so long? And as we do, we're coming to uh, what is perhaps the most difficult passage of the book. In fact, it's one of the most challenging passages in the whole of the of the whole of the New Testament really for scholar for scholars the very divided commentators as they try and work this out and for believers ourselves in churches to agree on it's a, one of those challenging passages um, however here's what we know and we get this information from Timothy and Timothy tells us in his second letter there in verse in chapter 3 verse 16 that all of scripture is inspired by God and that it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us what to do, what is right. That's the point of Scripture. That's the purpose of Scripture. But the main thing is it is God-breathed and inspired by God. So this text that we have here is exactly as God inspired it to be. So that we could have lives of genuine faith based out of this particular text, which has been the whole goal of James's letter the whole way through uh, this letter. James is the inspired author of this particular letter. And we saw and we looked into at the start of this and through we've been talking about who James is, that he's the half-brother of Jesus, that he thought Jesus was out of his mind at first. And then at some point he came to call Jesus Lord. There's this amazing transformation in James. And we said, well, the only reason for that is the resurrection, that Jesus actually came back from the dead and had a conversation with him. We saw that James is one of the pillars of the early church, that along with Peter and John, uh, that James oversaw the formation of the Christian community as it came to life out of the gospel, and that he was actually the first pastor of the first Christian church on planet Earth in Jerusalem there. That's James. And now he writes this letter to the believers to provide them with a spiritual health check for the Christian life because he knows that they're going through trying times and he knows that life is actually tough. So here comes this very practical letter to help us uh, as, we, as we go through life, that, that there should be evidence of what a Christian life looks like. If we claim that Jesus is our Lord, what then should our life look like is the thing. It should have, James says, some very radically uh, transformed expressions in our lives. And James calls these things works. Works like this, like an approach of the heart that sees trials of various kinds uh, through the lens of joy because they can mature us in what is the most valuable thing on earth, and that is intimacy and trust in God that we would be single-minded toward God that we wouldn't have a divided heart as we approach God that, that, that we would be doers of God's word and not just hearers of his word that our lives would not just be you know pious platitudes uh, uh, words that serve as a religious cover for our failure to actually act for our failure to be you know, act with impartiality, with justice, with mercy, with love and kindness, in particular to the poor, to be generous to them, to meet the needs of people around us at our own expense at times. That we would also listen to others more than we talk about ourselves. And that our words uh, would be words of praise, uplifting words of praise to God, rather than words that burn his world to the ground. 
That wisdom from God, not wisdom from the world, would actually guide our desires and our relationships, causing us to be agents of grace rather than agents of war. These are the works. That we would see ourselves as dependent on God's grace and not our own ability, not our own ability to command and take hold of the future and make plans, but upon God's grace. That we would see all that we have, our wealth, our resources, from a spiritual and an eternal uh, viewpoint and economy. That we would then you know, release them to the needs of the uh, needy and the poor, rather than storing them up and just letting them rot. That we would have this posture of purposeful patience that multiplies our faith in others, rather than grumbling about what's going on around us as we wait for the return of Jesus. And let me tell you, when you pray that sermon, you better remember it while you're driving your car with your wife next to you because she reminds you when you start kind of grumbling at the the fool who can't drive properly in front of you. These are some of the works of genuine faith, says James. And if Jesus is your Lord, your life should have these markers. It should look like that. And where it doesn't, James says, you should, be, you, you should repent, confess, repent, and, and change the way you are operating. And now as James draws his letter to a close, like all of the other inspired writers of Scripture, uh, of the New Testament, having taught us you know, the doctrines, the theology, and then, and then how we live in accordance with them, Having shown us how the Christian life is to be lived, if we call Jesus our Lord, now, like all the other writers, James encourages us towards prayer. Seven times prayer is mentioned in these closing verses. Have you ever noticed that about the other letters in the New Testament? That when they close, the writer, namely Paul and Hebrews, is is encouraging you to pray. You've heard all this stuff. Here's what we know about God. Now you must live in accordance. That's not easy to do. Well, pray. Pray for them. Pray for us. Just pray. Genuine faith works through prayer. James, like all the other biblical writers, knows that a faith that works is not achieved through um, our self-willed behavior modification, but rather flows out of intimacy with God. And intimacy with God is a product of prayer. And the works of the Christian life flow out of that. They, They flow out of prayer. J.I. Packer, he wrote a book, he wrote a lot of books, but his big one is knowing God, knowing God intimately, knowing what God's like. And if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of being in a relationship with him, and having God as a father. If this is not the thought that promotes and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole of life's outlook, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well at all. James concludes his letter with an encouragement to prayer, with an encouragement to approach God as good, loving Father, to relationship with a Father that shapes our lives, that shapes our works. So we go, well, that's not that difficult, really, is it? Why is this such a challenging passage? It's about prayer. Everyone can see that. Apart from being committed to prayer, it's not that difficult. This is an easy passage to understand. But the difficulty of the text is not the subject. The difficulty is in the description. And in particular, the 
the prayer of faith that's mentioned there in verse 15, that's at the centre of the subject. Because unlike other authors in Scripture who encourage us to pray at the end of their letters, and they, and they kind of do it in general, they might say, hey, pray for Paul while he does this, but there's, it's general prayer. James says a particular prayer will have a particular result if it's done by a particular person in a particular way. And he's emphatic about it. It's not, oh, it could happen, like this guy might be healed, or uh, if you have enough faith, if you try really hard. He says, no, he will. It's emphatic. It's how it's written. There's no way around it. But there is a lot of conjecture about what is this prayer of faith and, and, and what it is and the details around it and how they are to be understood and how they are to be practiced. But before we launch into that conversation, what is very clear is that James is saying that prayer should be the universal response to all of life's encounters and that prayer should be at the center of uh, the, the community of believers. Prayer that is balanced, prayer that seeks the Lord's help in trials and things like that. Trials of many kinds, sufferings, he says, it's the same word. And prayer that praises God when you're cheerful, when things are good, when life's comfortable. If any of you, among you are suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Let, him, let, him be, let their prayer be actually a, a, a song of the heart. Are you sick? Call the elders to the church to come and pray over you. All situations call for prayer. That's the point here. Life is not something we control. We, we, we saw that in James 4. We're like mist. We don't control the world. Remember? It's full of ups and downs. It's celebrations and grief. It's like a box of chocolates if you ask Forrest Gump's mum. But I would say it's more like one of these boxes, these bean boozes. Anyone ever had crack at these? Yeah, yeah. It's not worth being there if you haven't had a go, is it? But you can take some of them, and some of them, they taste like dirty dishwater, or they taste like a dead fish. They're the flavors. And some of them taste like tutti frutti or, or banana smoothie. They're the other flavors that you can... And you don't know what you're going to get. You spin the wheel and... You pick them up. You don't know. No matter how life tastes, the constant and consistent response, James says, should be genuine prayer. There's no situation in life where prayer to God is not relevant or not right. Our whole lives are to be lived in relation to and intimacy with God. That's what stops the spiritual drift that, that, that James has been writing about the whole way through this letter. That's what, that's what keeps the faith genuine. That's what stops the duplicit heart that James is seeking to correct. That's what warms prayer. That's what warms our heart with affection for God. That's what makes faith work and works of faith are revealed through prayer. Prayer is, is essential. And we, we see here we can pray via petition, that's asking God to come to our aid, or we can be prayerful in praise, cheerful, like we're singing. Described here as singing, singing praise. It's an invitation here to grieve and celebrate life with God. Here is a God who is interested in your story, being part of your story personally, and he's given us prayer as the means that that happens. 
I was having a chat with a high-performance guy at Melbourne United on Tuesday, and we were talking about, basically, I don't know, the subject topic could be odd encounters. And he once had a tarot card reader uh, in King's Cross, it's shady, uh, read his palm. And, she, and, and in the thing, he said, you know what? She knew exactly who I was, who I was in the family, what kind of person I was. She knew it precisely. I mean, you're on King's Cross, brother. It's not hard to work that one out. But anyway, description of him. She, she correctly foresaw a relationship that he was in and how that story would end. She got that perfectly right. We're still waiting to find out if she got right how long he's going to live, but we're hoping she was right because he's going to live a long time. It was like she was right about so much. She was right about, how does she know this? It's hard to deny that there's supernatural activity, that there's some kind of spiritual world out there. I said, yeah, I totally agree. It's hard to deny that there is more to life than just you know, physical matter, that we, that we don't live in a closed universe, that there's a spiritual element to life and the universe. There's more to life than this passing moment and the decomposition of the chemicals in it. There is something supernatural out there. There's something more to life. And he agreed, yeah, you're right. And I think we all agree, or at least we want to agree. We'd love that if that was really, really true. Now imagine with me, if you will, that the spiritual universe is not an impersonal force, or that it's not some kind of dualistic battle of good and evil, where we wonder who's going to win like Star Wars but that is actually under the sovereign guidance of an all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God. Like a God who just goes, hmm, camels, there. And that he wants to dial all those resources into your life so that you would know and experience his goodness as being for you. And now imagine, with me if you will, that you actually really believed that. That you actually really believed that and that it was actually a reality in your life because of what Jesus had done. Not, oh, I wonder if that, well, wouldn't it be nice if that was true? But by faith in Christ, that is now the living, breathing reality of your life. And prayer is how, it's, how it functions. Prayer is how, it, how the waters are stirred. If you had that kind of genuine faith, then you would sing, you would dance, and you would pray all day long. Would you not? And it wouldn't just be when you needed it, when you needed aid. It would be every time you wanted to share your story with the God who adopted you into this reality, into his story. Prayer is the work of genuine faith. People with faith are praying people. It sounds so wonderful. And yet we get so distracted. And it is so hard to do. So here we go. Don Carson has given us a list of a couple of things to help us out with this practice. Just throwing these in here before we move on. And I'm sure these ideas are not exclusively his, but they're in a book uh, that he's written. And he says, hey, plan to pray. Like, 
plan to pray. And some of us go, oh, that doesn't sound too you know, organically um, relational and, and all that kind of stuff. But I guarantee you, if you plan to spend some time with your spouse, like you lock that in, that wouldn't kill intimacy. That would grow intimacy, wouldn't it? Like if you planned relationships... They die without it. Like I, I desire to ride my bike at the moment. I've got a little thing where I'm trying to ride my bike all the time. And I actually love it. But if I don't plan a point in my week to get on that bike, then everything else is just going to go. And I'll get to Friday and go, no, oh, no bike ride this week. Well, I didn't plan. Plan to pray. Adopt practical ways to stop the mental drift Like when you pray, get rid of distractions. Like get rid of your phone. Close your laptop. Find a setting where it's just you and God. Don't be tired. Like are you a morning person or a night person? Seek people. Seek people to pray with. And, and, and learn to pray from them and, and also have them as an accountability. Like, you know, if somebody else knows, hey, we're praying on Wednesday at 4 o'clock in the morning, yeah, I've got to be there. Develop a system. Don't come to prayer unprepared. Have a list. Like, have a list of what you want to pray for. Like, in my office, I've got this great big whiteboard and I've got all these names up there. So that I go, oh, that's right. And that's who he's married to and there are his kids and away we go. Have a, a pathway if you want. Confession, repentance, uh, petition, praise, thanksgiving. Even if you work your way through the Lord's Prayer. like The Lord's Prayer is not supposed to be prayed like some kind of formula. It's telling you like uh, descriptions of how to pray and what to pray for. Mine, Scripture. What, what he means here is, you know, as you don't, like when you're praying, like, oh man, I need a Bible verse to pray for. As you are reading the Bible and you come across a passage of Scripture and you're like, man, I would love to be able to pray that for my wife or my kids or my work. Write that down in a prayer journal. So when it comes to that time, you go, that's right, yeah. Let me go back to that Scripture. And finally, and this isn't Don Carson's, I think this is a quote of the Puritans, and it's pray until you pray. And what they mean is pray until a duty turns into a delight. So, so don't like, oh man, five minutes, oh my prayer life sucks. You gave it five minutes, what do you expect? Like five minutes, I can't even get the conversations out of my own head in five minutes. How do we expect that to kind of change? I close my eyes, I've got about 20 different things bouncing around in my head. Time, take some time. Pray until you pray. All right, there you go. Thanks, Don Carson, for giving us them. Well, James moves on and he now describes how the prayer life is not merely personal and private practice, not merely a personal corporate practice where where we are the ones praying and others are praying for us. But there are times when it's the responsibility of the church to come and to pray on your behalf. And this is where the prayer of faith is described, and that's where people have their divergent views. Divergent views come about because people are trying to reconcile the, the absolute, uh, unambivalent nature of James's, you know, will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Like, how do they reconcile that with the fact that plenty of godly people have prayed, and plenty of godly people have died? complete opposite of what's promised here so what's wrong 
Is the prayer wrong? Is the faith inadequate? Is the sick person got something wrong with them, not doing something right? Is the prayer guy not a, a faithful person? You used the wrong oil? Like, did you get your oil at Kmart? Like, what did you do? Was it the prayer or the one person? Was it a lack of faith? All these questions. Was there unconfessed? Oh, they must, have, they must have not told us about some kind of sin hidden away there. That's why it didn't work. And so you can see all these questions. You can see how getting this passage wrong can be really harmful to people, particularly when we start saying, oh, brother, yeah, you're dying because you don't have enough faith. I just want to punch people like that in the face, so don't say that around me. And with that in mind, Sam Elbury, he says, and other commentators have all said this, that when it comes to difficult texts like this, it helps to rule out what it can't mean. So let's go find out what it can't mean. And then like Sherlock Holmes, when he talks to Watson, he says, eliminate the impossible and what remains, however unlikely, must be truth. Okay, that's kind of helpful and wise. Thanks, Sherlock Holmes. Stops us from making the wrong application in our confusion. Well, here we go. Here's what I think. Firstly, what it can't be, and this one's pretty obvious, and that James does not have in view here uh, the Roman Catholic practice, how they've developed this practice of last rites, where the righteous person, the priest, his deathbed confession of the person, and through the anointing and oil and the prayers of the priest, the person is spiritually saved before they die. A a prayer of last rites where any remnant of sin is removed and the person is saved, healed spiritually by the divinely empowered agents of the prayer and the oil. Like that just can't be. Because uh, while the elder is asked to come and pray, confession is made not to him but to, to one another. There's a corporate element on here. And there is this small fact that this sickness is physical. It's a physical sickness and it results in physical healing. Like the person doesn't actually die. So it can't be that. And neither is James setting the groundwork uh, for healing rallies and healing ministries and church services to take place that go seeking people to, to come and, and, and who have enough faith to come and be healed. You know, Benny Hinn type of stuff. That's not in view here. The initiation is not taken uh, by the church, but by the sick person. And it takes place in their home. He's visited in his home, not at a church service, not at a rally. And finally, it's just an everyday run-of-the-mill elder, if I can say that, who prays, not some gifted healing person, not some person who's got the gift of healing. That that person's not in this passage. Prayer is not a parachurch activity. It's requested by... This prayer is not a parachurch activity. It's requested by the person and it's performed by the elders and the community. This prayer is not, you know, come down the front and we'll pray over you and you can be healed or you will be healed. You, you can do that, but that's not what's being described here. Okay? James cannot have in view that all prayer will always lead to healing in all cases. as It doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. 
We see examples in the Bible of godly people who are sick not being healed. Timothy's like the primary, that's the one that comes to mind. He has to take wine for an ailment that he has. Now, you can't tell me, like he's written, Paul knows about it, he's written to Paul. You can't tell me that Timothy hasn't prayed about this. And Paul doesn't send him to a healing rally or tell him that his faith is insufficient. He has to work up the intensity of his faith or anything like that. But rather, he expects that this is an illness that will require ongoing medical treatment. Prayer and medicine, uh, medical science and prayer are not at odds in the scripture. It's not a lack of faith to go and see a doctor. It's not a lack of faith to go and see a counselor or a physio or anything like that. You break your arm, what do you do? No, you get that thing x-rayed. Finally, uh, some people think that James isn't talking about physical healing at all. Healing related to an actual physical ailment, but he's talking about spiritual healing only. So therefore, there's no physical miracle that needs to be observed. It's all happening in the faith world. And this is because the word sick here can mean, uh, and it does mean, to be weak. James could be talking about a faith crisis, a a weak faith that's double-minded or prone to sinful attitudes. So prayer is for renewed faith, for strengthened faith. And while while there's scope for that, it's very unlikely to be James's main idea uh, because all of the commentators point out, and everyone's kind of unanimous on this, that there would be much clearer ways to convey that idea. And if that had been his intent, that's what he would have done. Or the language in this passage points towards the fact that this is a physical illness that will lead to physical recovery. There may be you know, a, a spiritual contributor to the physical injury. There may be some sin that's contributing to the physical injury, but they're, they're, what they see is a physical illness and a physical recovery. And just also quickly, it cannot be something that is confined. Some people think, oh, well... The reason why we don't see it now is because it was an apostolic gift. It only happened in the apostolic era. Uh, It was only the apostles that had such miraculous power. But the apostles aren't mentioned. They're not in this verse. It's the elders of the church who are called. The elders. And and the elder is an, an established, ongoing office and ministry in the church. So James envisages that this will continue that it will be a practice of an ongoing work of the church now they're just a few of the main interpretations of this passage that i don't think james is talking about here and i'm not alone you know there's a lot of commentators out there that agree so what are we left with and again this is where i've settled and you might not agree with me uh, but this is how i practically exercise this verse in this church I think the picture here is this, that James is describing a request for prayer from a person who feels themselves that they have been convicted by the Holy Spirit, um, that that they are seeking prayer for that out of that conviction, that they are seeking prayer in faith to address a sickness that is physical, that they may have physical recovery. The illness itself is physical but may be caused by 
sinful attitudes. Not necessarily, but maybe there might be some kind of sinful thing in there that's actually contributing to that. That's the possible scope of what's going on here. But they have been convicted that prayer will heal them. So it's on the initiation of the person to the church. Maybe they've been praying through Psalm 139, like, search me, O God, know my heart. Man, I just need healing here. It has been the prayerful faith of the person that has brought them to the place of request, which is why then godly, wise people, elders, are called upon to come and help discern prayerfully how to care for this person and how to seek healing that has been imprinted on this person's heart, that they've been convicted about. Neither the oil or the elder have any divine healing power of their own, but it's the Lord who is pictured here as the agent of healing. And that's the point. And so what I think we've got here is a beautiful picture of God's care for an individual to let them know that they are not alone in this sickness but that God is aware and that he has instructed his church to care for them in this. And they should neither fear the sickness that they have nor fear the fact that maybe it could be that their own sinful life has led to this physical illness. Even if it is caused by sin, confession and repentance with safe people can take place. And now that's been the whole message of James, hasn't it? Like this is what life's supposed to look like. And if it doesn't, confess, repent. So why would James kind of go on some weird tangent now and change that? Neither sickness nor sin should keep us separated from the family of God. But rather they could possibly be avenues for God's grace to be ministered to us in our time of need. I think that's the picture here. Now is this normative? Obviously not, no. James is the only person who actually mentions it. Most of the time, people just want prayer because they know it's effective. They know prayer is the means through which God accomplishes things in their lives, accomplishes things physically, accomplishes things spiritually. And that is how most of the New Testament writers encourage us to pray. But here James describes a particular conviction that is held by a person requesting the prayer. And it's up to the elders of the church and the church leaders to come and discern that and act accordingly. Just like, and it's also clear you know, that the oil has no miraculous power. It's, it's symbolic, if you like, of care, even medicinal. Like oil is cutting-edge medicine at that time, very effective in the healing process. It's also clear that the elder, and we mentioned this before, is not some gifted healer, nor is the prayer itself effective because of the clever wordsmithing uh, of the person. But healing comes about because the Lord has been invited in to deal with what the Lord has revealed as needing to be dealt with. God at work after a person has acted in faith on the conviction that God has laid in their heart. Now, <laughs> there's lots more. There's lots more. That's, you know, 
It's kind of hard not to get lost in the detail. I'd love to talk, and I've just written a little bit here about how in, in, in this, we have this picture of holistic healing prescribed by James some 2,000 years before our medical science, our progressive, you know, Western thinking actually caught up with the, the fact that our emotions and our attitudes can actually make us physically sick. And here James is saying, God could be letting you know that the reason you have an ulcer in your stomach is because you nurture bitterness, brother. The reason you get migraines, and I'm just using this I'm not, as an example, is because you harbor hatred. Could that be the reason behind your headaches? Are you exhausted and tired? Maybe because you're living a, a deceitful life, like you're having an affair, or you're, 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 you're um, I don't know, swindling money out of the business you work for. Stress kills. It's not God punishing you. The sickness is not God going, oh, I'll teach you for having that affair. Yeah, break your leg. It's you killing yourself through persistent, sinful practice. And the picture here is of God intervening to say, this got to end. Call the elders in. Let's get to the bottom of this. Confession literally frees you from relational destruction and ongoing physical impact. It actually improves your health and your spiritual integrity. And medical science agrees with this across the board. Like I've re- got a bunch of articles you can read about this, but I love it when science catches up with Scripture. It's always comforting. What is clear is that faith that works, genuine faith, is always should always be engaged in prayer, general prayer. Are you suffering? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Yes, yeah, sing about that. Personal prayer, community prayer, and at times, uh, prayer based on the conviction of the sick person to go and call in the elders and seek healing. Prayer. And just to make sure we don't get go putting this description of prayer into some kind of special category for specialized, gifted showman or showwoman, James gives us Elijah and we think, hang on a minute. No, that would do that. It gives us Elijah as an example of extraordinary prayer by a pretty ordinary person. James says, Elijah had a nature like ours. He's not an example of perfect prayer by an altogether person. Like once Elijah actually prayed for his own death because he was afraid uh, that, that Jezebel, the queen, was going to catch up with him and chop him up and cut him into pieces and do all that kind of crazy now this fear, this, he just ran away like, kill me now, Lord. This came after Elijah had you know, prayed that the sky would be closed for three years. And then he prayed again and it rained. This came after Elijah had prayed and raised a dead boy back to life. But Elijah, even with all of this history, in times of trials, just for a moment, simply forgot who God is, simply forgot who it was that he was praying to. All of a sudden, it became about him again. I and I am only left here. Whoa, poor me. Elijah is a picture that weak people can have powerful prayer when they are single-minded about who to pray to. There's a lot more to the story. been pretty tight because of time. Um, Don't get lost in the details, but genuine faith 
prays. It prays to God who cares. It prays to God who listens and responds. Who gives us people to come along and pray with and to pray for us. That's the, that's the prayer of genuine faith. And that's how James is closing this letter. Lord, we thank you for your love towards us. We thank you that you are so invested into our lives and who we are that you give us this thing called prayer, this, this relational gift whereby we can bring our lives before you across all lanes and across all lines. And we come to you in petition at times. We come and ask that you would intervene, that you would come into our lives, that you would work in them for us in our struggles and our weaknesses and toward our desires we also know that we can celebrate life with you that the joy of our heart has a has a place to overflow that understands it that, that, that receives it we know that we can also come and, and pray here we see for healing in our lives in general but we know that you have designed your church to be a place where where we can take very serious matters and concerns into your body and have them prayed for as well in the way that leads to our healing we thank you for that thank you for this gift of the church and the community it is and uh, just what a what a wonderful thing to be a part of Thank you for this book of James and we have journeyed through it now and we pray that we would continue to remember the lessons, the works that you have sowed into our hearts that we have heard on a Sunday morning that we've studied throughout the week in our Bible study groups and that and pray that you would continue to make us people of good works uh, that your kingdom would continue to reach into the lives of people uh, giving traction for the gospel to be heard and made known in the hearts and the lives of people. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.